the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today, maybe maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems... In some ways, as though it was only yesterday, time has gone by so quickly, as you say, and yet uh, these have been great and privileged years, and I, I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. and. Uh, <laughs> And then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in, in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so more and deeper into the arena of a, a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation. And uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented. Uh, in uh, the culture here in America, particularly, in, uh, and uh, expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us, perhaps begrudgingly, can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. 
names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Uh, Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in in the, the church in specific and in our society at large that that certainly summarizes it well yeah i think it's a, <laughs> i think it sounds so good i'm pretty sure that must be sinclair <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to no. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that, that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've, it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recapture that ability how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they're, they're not asking the question, where is Jesus? They're asking, where am I? Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in the in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. You know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've, they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the, the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and uh, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really 
uh, struggling to to stand up to the, the the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus that there is only one mediator between God and man and that is Jesus that there's only one name by which men and women may be saved and that is in the name of Jesus and the the, the drift in culture in in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man in, and our, a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ. As our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekday mornings at 730 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, uh, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis... Preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly needs to, means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that is that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes, I, you know, I think um, it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a uh, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that... Uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the me- I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, but the one thing that uh, uh, they were unprepared for is um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, 
there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it. And we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning you know, sort of American Christianity, and of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that he, he he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So that mm. we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong, uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever, um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which... Uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all, before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for, uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But, um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that actually it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm-hmm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the, the um, 
the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and labored for and I, I actually am quite excited about it though Craig I I'm not uh, despondent I'm not wringing my hands I I think that there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church mm. if we if we recognize that uh, as we must that God is sovereign over these things that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum and therefore our voice must be heard but we have to recognize too that you know our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended King, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic. Uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically, that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the, the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield, yes. you've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that, that uh, cares for, the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Oh. Well, I think if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being a, an expression of his identity. That what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me, and what he teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures, and I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which uh, to which I'm called, and that then you know impacts 
every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, the mm-hmm. compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often, if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way and a few crazy people have, have led to it, but, but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for? There's silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation starts. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't. He he eventually gets to the point. You know, when he asks her to call her husband, and and she admits that you know she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's not what that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning you know her uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Maybe we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 730 here on KFAX. And, uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. And what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note? It's not about puffing people up, but, you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for his word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org truthforlife.org And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. 
this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation, and speaks all across the country on the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it it would seem that not only are we in trouble, but many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, um, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint, but it seems as if in, in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the, the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but but even in terms of just our, our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s those that grew up during the sexual revolution and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where uh, quite frankly uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom and um, quite simply i think abraham lincoln put it best He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, Then we start getting into the seventies and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just, just stay back. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, Abraham Lincoln said it best. This is now the philosophy of our government, and we now live in a place and time where um, I think, and then this is just my personal philosophy, it's one of the reasons that I travel the country talking about this stuff, um, I think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits. Our pulpits aren't the same anymore. They're so watered down and uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door and there's no truth being preached anymore. So really, in, in a large sense, then, this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river, and before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom, uh, you know, 
dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that and certainly this is not meant to be a, a blanket accusation, Pastor, no. but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning, and, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill, and I have a salary that has to be paid, and, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church, so I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this, and as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when, when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook, you see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings, they have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing. And this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, <laughs> stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out. And when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church, and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God, and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a he was a cleric during the American Revolution, and he actually says, I mean, I, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, "Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is." Ours in a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, if there's, if there's a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next because this is what we're talking about—the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away. The pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect 
to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington, he did not attribute the Continental Army, he did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen, the, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach and that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, e- even a, a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the Views, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavaria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here perhaps at hand is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, There is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of everybody kind of their own corner, doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do, uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and of course to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing, or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody is maybe a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are. And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel uh, a bit intimidated. Uh, What about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold. Um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part. There is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. 
It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the word, in the book of 1 Corinthians is, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, the, the nom- I, I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals. And uh, we all have different, quote unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere. But we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on, a, on a video platform. And we all started meeting together. And, and among us, there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny. The Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians, Man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christian, we will turn, the, not, not the nation, we'll turn the world upside down. Well, of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on, on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship really looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate, uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian, but they've never been through a discipleship process, they don't know how to pray, they don't know how to read the Word, they've never shared their faith with another person. Right. Right. We just basically convert people and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians. And it's just never going to work. Yeah, and when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It never. It's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly. And that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70 percent, 60 to 70 percent of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism. Mm. And uh and, and that that's a big that's a staggering number. Sixty to seventy percent. In the churches of Christ it's higher than that. It's seventy five to eighty percent. Um but I you know, like I said, I preach for I will preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh but but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that and it, it's it's very simple. It's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity. And um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it. I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, hey, I'm just I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. And, and that's true to a degree. But I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. 
And, and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to do that anymore. So we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. All you have to do is follow Jesus because that takes the whole, don't, don't follow me. Don't. But here's the thing, me as a Christian, as a church leader, I want people to follow me. I want people behind me because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall. That means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down. You know, so it's okay to teach somebody, and, and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus, because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing, and I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement, yeah. and that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that, that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, spirit renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you, if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to Pente- it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is. Um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, the, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word. The word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember. That you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore. And you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household. This sense of, of, the, the, the sense of cooperation, this sense of working together, the this, this sense of building each other up. Because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. 
uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andal and just get into Shava R I L, you'll you'll find him that way too. Or again, the Twitter at at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights, and encourage listeners. Hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one what does not only that that look like but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us as i said earlier while the bible is the standard setter the church is the standard bearer our thanks to pastor andrew chavaria for being with us tonight on this segment of life life that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.